You're listening to an ACCA podcast. My name is Miriam Kelly and I'm the curator of Feedback Loops, an exhibition at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. I had the great opportunity recently to sit down with Madison Bycroft, one of the exhibiting artists, while they were in Australia, to discuss their work in the exhibition and ideas of performance, writing and language in their practice more broadly. My name is Madison Bycroft. I am an artist from Adelaide and I'm currently living in Marseille in the south of France. Um, I've been in Europe for five years um, after being lucky enough to be a recipient of the Annan Annan Gordon Samstag Scholarship. And so I went to the Pietzvart Institute in Rotterdam and did my master's there before moving to France. Um, The origin of my work in the exhibition, I think it's difficult to place in one sort of singular origin, but I would say that a lot of the thinking um, started around uh, research into deadpan, deadpan comedy and slapstick comedy and trying to think about the uh, relationship between the two, if there's similarities, are they each other's antithesis um, and could there be found a certain tactic from either of those in terms of a mode of expression um, that would refuse. So Ruses and Refusals is the title of the main body of work that we see at ACCA and that includes a four-channel video and sculptural installation. Madison, I'm just wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about the title and what it means in the context of these works. I guess it's just uh, uh, an extension of of thinking about um, uh, strategies or tactics of refusals, ruses being a certain kind of trickery or um, uh, tripping up or maybe a kind of like betrayal in like a light-hearted sense. Um, And the... The, the video is, yeah, as you said, four channels and each of them, I don't want to say centres on, maybe orbits around uh, four different characters that in different ways, I think, approach this uh, approach a mode or, or perform a mode of refusal. So um, Julian of Norwich, who was an anchoress from the 14th century, 15th century, between the 14th and the 15th century, <laughs> and um, as was a common practice for anchorites and anchoresses, um, enclosed herself within a small chamber at- that was attached to a church as a way of, um, uh, I mean, obviously there was a religious religious and spiritual connotation, but there was also um, a, a mode of uh, withdrawal from society or withdrawal from the world in order to make space to be closer to, in her case, God, but also to her writing. Um, uh, another character, I won't go through them all, but um, another character, for example, um, which one shall I choose? Thetis, who is a, uh, a nereid, uh, a water nymph, and is most famous for being the, the mother of Achilles, but was also a polymorph and there's also sort of pops pops her head up in lots of different stories never as the center of the story but um, I was thinking about how um, there is a moment which is quite violent in one of the myths where she is sort of um, taken and 
um, subdued into submission and one of her ways of trying to refuse that was by constantly shifting forms from one thing to the other and one thing to the other and at some point she takes the form of the cuttlefish which has also been a recurrent creature in my practice I, I did a performance last year that was really um, trying to think alongside the cuttlefish um, and so I was immediately drawn to this this idea of, of um, camouflage or disguise or morphing or shape-shifting as like a, a very active way of refusing um, being grasped or being being um, fixed. The other two characters, I won't talk about them so much, but one is the satyr and the fourth is Diogenes of Sinope. Sinope. I'm not sure about my pronunciation. Yeah. And um, within your practice, you've moved across multiple mediums. If you could talk a little bit about how that has developed in your practice from drawing, sculpture, video, performance, how that kind of weaves together as a, mm. a holistic practice. Yeah. yeah, I think sometimes I feel like there is lots of different artists working in my practice and I think I sometimes lose sight of it being a cohesive um, trajectory. But then other people say, no, 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 for sure. Like, I can see that it's your work. And, and for me, I think uh, the, the, the medium has always followed the trajectory of, of thinking or something. And so I, I try not to limit myself. I'm really a big fan of like self-taught or untaught um, practice and um, non-expertise or like non-skilled approaches. So as long as I'm like down with that kind of aesthetic, then it could it has a lot of, of scope for trying out different things and trying sound or um, text or sculpture or I mean yeah there's there's definitely not a lot of like a really highly technical except for maybe video editing which I think is like a a progressive and constantly learning a little bit more. Um, but I think yeah I mean I started I was initially a painter. Uh, years and years ago in, in South Carolina I went to college there for a couple of years and it was quite a traditional education and then at some point I realized that my mum's house had become a museum of my <laughs> quite poor paintings <laughs> I thought this is, is enough and um, ironically I thought that moving into a sculpture department would change the 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 production of of materials but um so I was making videos for a little while and using myself a lot in my videos, which I think was uh, an economic decision as well as like a, a it's quite easy to um, explain to yourself uh, a kind of aesthetic that you want. And um, maybe at the time I thought that there was something something important about it being my body. Um, and then yeah, I, I guess it's moved from there into. Uh, I think that that was quite sincere work, the performance to camera, which I was doing in my undergrad and my honours. And I think it became a lot more theatrical slowly, a lot more light, a lot more playing with script and costume and props, which then sort of opened up a, a sculptural practice. Um, and performance is, I guess, quite recent in my practice, but also feels... I mean, I feel like I'm still quite not quite sure of how I, um, how I place performance in my practice. And I... I I oscillate from one moment feeling a complete resentment of visibility and being watched and um, to claiming a space of attention and uh, really enjoying working with people who might perform uh, my work and then swinging back to like, no, 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 actually, I, I do think it's important that I'm 
being um, present and embodied as part of this. So, yeah, it's shifting a lot, but that's yeah, that's fine. So at the moment, yeah, it's it's I'm somehow straddling sculpture, performance, and video, trying to write a bit more. Writing is quite an important part of your practice, and it's a very um, important aspect in terms of the way that you play with language, particularly English. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what, where that comes from? Yeah, I I don't think that I feel like I'm a good writer, but I don't know if anyone who writes would say, oh, I, I'm a good writer. <laughs> but I, I do enjoy, I really enjoy wordplay. I love puns. I love like thinking about like, uh, I think I have a tendency of, of finding these very, very small things and then expanding them into like a, a politic or a methodology or a philosophy. So that could be, you know, at one point I was thinking about homophones or, or puns as a form of solidarity because there is like a, a surface across difference that is a similar, there's a similarity there, even though they're not the same because of accent, etc., etc. There is this kind of um, uniform surface or like a, a banner in which difference can gather under or something like this. And then, like, I have an ongoing interest in a ancient Greek medi- uh, ancient Greek uh, uh, verbal category called the middle voice, which is some in some places present in um, uh, extant languages today. It was a little bit present in a form of English called Passival, which I'm also totally fascinated with. I really want to go back and do some more research about this, but it was sort of like the 17th, 18th century. It would be quite common to say something like the garden was putting in order or um, the house was building instead of the house was being built. That's the most famous example that people use is like the introduction of the the phrase is being is quite a, a late development in English. And so you know, this idea of the house, the house is building, there is an ambiguity about what's doing what or who, who is building the house. And even though it was like a common sense, of course, that the builders are building the house within the language structure itself, it kind of made space for um, some, some un, um, to unsettle authority or agency or, you know, these kinds of things. And, and it's still like, there are some things we say, like, um, the cake is baking, we still might say that, or the, the film is showing, um, in England, they say um, I was sat by the bar instead of I was sitting by the bar, which I love. So some, something sat you by the bar. <laughs> so a lot of these kinds of word plays, I think I, get, I become really fascinated with and then try to think about, um, yeah, what, what's, what is possible to rethink about the way we're using language. Because I think maybe a lot of it also comes from that. I, I think I went through a... Uh, a phase where I really detested language generally and process of naming and t- taxonomy and the divisive nature of how we speak to each other and the assumptions that are made in language and et cetera, et cetera. But I think also um, I, at the Piazzavate, I worked with a translator of Roland Barthes whose name is Kate Briggs and she was incredible and she was my writing tutor. And I think some of the work that I was doing with her also like made me kind of move, like, I. I I can sort of see where I was, but also try to sort of relish in a lot of the, the pop, like poetry and like playing with words and um, what's possible to that that language can also be a space making practice and it can also um, uh, question 
your subjectivity or the way that it can sort of like re, re, reshape like a, a politic or a philosophy you know I think there's a lot of exciting things that was a really long convoluted answer but that was a beautiful <laughs> answer I'm, there's a moment that really sticks um, out for me it's sort of replays in my head often where um, the word no mm. and I think obviously there's a very strong connection with the titling but it's very playful it's very um, whimsical as well as being quite a serious um, sort of sensibility mm. which I think is very um, beautiful and characteristic in your work it's sort of a tickle and punch kind of approach I mm. think with the subject matter yeah um, is there anything else you want to say about, <laughs> about language um I think, well, I mean, it's not super present in this work, but I think one thing that I'm interested in moving forward and in the future of my practice and um, is, you know, living in France and learning French and sort of thinking a little bit, bit about um, translation as a practice. Not, I'm, I'm not translating, um, but um, I don't know, trying to think about ways in which bilingualism or... No, it's not even bilingualism, it's more just shifting monolingualism can enter into my practice. And um, I think uh, there's a, a poet who is French-Norwegian, I think, called Carolyn Bergvold, who plays with this a lot. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's incredible the way that um, she sort of like morphs from English into Norwegian into French. And you, even though I don't understand Norwegian, you can follow the narrative because of the, the sonic play. And there's like a sort of kind of... Um, uh, uh, phonic similarity between some words and glissant even though you don't uh, you have a feeling of what that could mean mm. or like a, um, you talk a bit about nonsense yeah. and the role of meaning and understanding and that mm. kind of audience desire to interpret mm. um, those sorts of things all roll around in the work mm. and particularly I think in the work you're presenting um, as a performance mm -hmm. for the show yeah um, you've mentioned there was a conversation you had about nonsense and the mm -hmm. kind of role that plays and things yeah. you're thinking around yeah you know the meaning of nonsense mm. yeah I think it's um, it was actually really great one of the I had a good conversation with one of the performers in the work um, around uh, the the attempt to sort of make up words that might sound like they could make sense but didn't and then the difficulty around that and the the sort of murky edges of when you're trying to make up something that's lyrical and melodic and maybe like um how you might think birdsong could be said or something like this but then at what point does my version of there being no sense in the in the words actually sound like they might be sense for someone else or a different language or a different and um so yeah I think it's I think it can be tricky but it's also something that um I'm I'm interested in like uh I mean I guess it kind of comes back to this sort of sort of playing around with language and thinking about how words can evacuate themselves or like um be floating or floating signifiers Madison, could you tell me a little bit about the performance, which is called Antihero, and which you're restaging at ACCA site specifically for the context of this exhibition? Um, seven. It's a seven-part performance, which I've done one time before. This one will be very different, or not very different, a medium amount of difference. <laughs> and, um, it's... 
follows um, it follows a central character and follows a traditional story arc and maybe tries to challenge that or find find the holes in that um, without getting too uh, deep. I I was thinking I, I was um, I was writing a lot earlier this year about what uh, I was writing as asexual narrative structures of desire. <laughs> and I think that, you know, a lot of people might be familiar with sexual narrative structures of desire, or um, I think Peter Brooks was one of the people who has written a lot about that, but um, uh, desire being something that propels narrative towards uh, a closure or towards a, a sense of an accomplishment or fulfillment or climax or and so the proposition of an asexual narrative structure of desire doesn't negate there being a desire for something but it maybe has a resistance to this moment of closure or grasping or um completeness or um yeah so i think that i'm i'm kind of interested in that in in how that might be possible without there being no meaning without it just becoming like a um postmodern for the sake of postmodern, you know, like how can it be still um, saying something without it having to focus on this moment of like uh, being graspable or, or situating itself within an ideology or within a, uh, a structure of meaning, or, um, which I think is again a form of refusal or a, a way of, of evading or trying to evade a, a system that doesn't offer the possibility for, for many, many bodies to be themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so the performance is kind of um, trying to play a little bit with this tension of like still trying to tell a story without it, um, without telling a story. Um, and I think that there is this kind of tension between my, myself as like the, a character that is something like a voiceover or an authority or, um, narrator and the performers who are sort of at times moving with me, at times stepping to the side and at times working against me. Um, and yeah, I don't know, to be honest, I, I like, I think now this being the second time that I'm doing it, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that I'm do it's doing all the things that I want it to do. So maybe it's like, you know, a step towards a, a new limb of the performance that might happen or a new iteration. Because um, I think I think that the it's it's almost there, but it's like uh, I'll be I'll be interested to talk to you after. Just before I ask you about the whole ensemble as a sort of a backdrop, because the performance will be taking place in that in that backdrop. Maybe I will start there. Actually, in fact, mm -hmm. so the we haven't spoken about the elephant in the room being the extraordinary <laughs> drawing um, four panel drawing that is the backdrop essentially for the first view of your work obviously when you come through the show from different ways you then encounter um, each of the sculptural works from a different angle mm -hmm. um, is this the drawing because the drawing sort of has built in your practice over the last year is it mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit more about that drawing yeah yeah I think that um, I think I still don't really understand why I'm doing these drawings you know I started doing drawing again after not working in in like an image making or like a painting or a drawing practice for since 2006 I don't know 2008 maybe um 
for pleasure and I was on a residency and I wanted to have a, a sort of studio practice that was um, purposefully not working towards a deadline or wasn't working towards a finished product that was just um, uh, a practice of using my hands and doing something slowly that and that was that was that but then um, a curator did a studio visit and was like oh I love these can we show them and I was like yeah I guess so <laughs> it's fine and so <laughs> yeah. no and I mean I still think that there is a really different you know I, I met uh, I met someone over the last summer in Europe who was who said to me that they felt that the drawings were really really different to the rest of my practice and I'm not yeah I think maybe now that there is more of an enveloping um, or like a I feel like there is a certain kind of um, capacity that the extension of the drawings onto the walls for example has of holding a space or becoming almost a carrier or a sack or something for whatever happens in that room so I think it's more difficult to to discern like to, to say that they're completely separate now but um I do think that my way of working with drawing is quite different. I think that it's really not strategic. It's like, and maybe it's shifting slightly. If I did these these three drawings for the Ren Biennale last year that were on a pulley system, like the backdrops of a theater, so that they would move up and down, um, uh, which was very, very inspired by Marx Brothers, by the way. Um, and that now I look back at them and they almost seem like pure decoration like they're really really flat and really kind of there's a lot happening on a surface and not a lot of depth and I'm, I'm not making a value judgment about that but I think I wasn't in any way thinking about composition I was just drawing and then this this shape would move into this other shape and then that shape, shape would move into this other shape and then I would step back and go well that's weird but I'll keep going and then now I think that that's slowly like I, I still don't know what the image will be at the end when I start I still um, uh, kind of follow follow the drawing, and so I feel like there is a nice um, sort of play of agency. Like one of my favorite writers, Helen Sixu, talks a lot about following the book or following the writing, and I feel like that happens most in my drawings. Um, but then at the same time, I think that there is a lot of um, imagery, especially in the one in Akka, that is um, quite specific and pertinent um, to the conceptual framework of the show or to the thinking which is like purposeful but also in its combination and the way that the characters come together it's not at all um and so that that's basically the the presence of of faces in in the the image um in the form of masks or and sometimes it looks like creatures there's a lot of um like suits of armor which I think also is like, you know, in I think, you know, it's funny because I think in some ways I'm really interest, interested in non-direct referencing and non, uh, non-legibility and the, the work not having to be understood through a system of codes or blah, 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 blah. But then at the same time, there are moments where I'm like, that's a definitely a direct relate relationship to the fact that I was reading Italo Calvino's book, uh, The Non-Existent Night, where there is a, 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 a knight who dresses in a beautiful suit of armor and uh, doesn't exist so there is nothing inside the armor and there is one um, uh, feminine knight within the story and she falls in love with the non-existent light knight because he is the only knight that remain that that kind of eludes her grasp she can't ever understand this character because he's constantly 
um, he, he's like vacuous. There isn't, there is nothing to, to hold. And so she, she, you know, and I think that it, through everything that I was saying, like it's sort of clear the reason why that was super interesting to me and thinking about the suit of armor as a kind of surface that is reflective, is shiny, is legible, but at the same time is completely disguising or hiding a, 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 a character. Um, which I think is also sort of repeated in the form of the mask or the wig or the, the costuming or disguise. Da, 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 da. I don't want to conflate all those things because, of course, they're slightly different, but the same sort of general um, thought, I guess, is running through that. Um, there's also um, two uh, amazing wall reliefs that flank the um, exit from your particular space at Akka. Um, and they have um, animations that have been made in collaboration. Obviously, collaboration is rife throughout in terms mm -hmm. of the film-based work. Um, but specifically, I think when you, you were talking a little bit about Desire and Eros previously, mm -hmm. um, Poros and Penia, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, is that are they re reflective of that kind of um, research as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I... So yeah, Poros and Penia are the the in one. There are so many different versions of of um, mythology and different stories with different sort of family lineages. But in one version, they are the parents of Eros, and um, one represents Poros represents abundance, and Penia represents lack um, or for poverty and wealth, or however you want to sort of make that dichotomy, um, and. Uh, then yeah, there is like a small Eros or Cupid, depending if we're, whether we're doing ancient Greek or ancient Rome. <laughs> it's probably closer to a, a Roman representation, but um, and I was yeah, I mean um, thinking a lot about um, my partner's writing a lot about entropy, and I think like conversations around that were. Um, were present when I was sort of making that work, but also um, reading um, secondhand accounts by Anne Carson of ancient Greek lyric poets who would um, always talk about the experience of desire or love as a destructive force of, um, uh, I think, you know, I remember reading this page where she sort of listed all of the different verbs that are used um, and it's like melting and prickling and crushing and shattering and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in, in that video, there's just sort of a, a three, three modes of, of dissolution or entropy that Eros sort of undergoes. Um, but I guess thinking a little bit, um, I'm struggling a little bit with this question, but I th think thinking a little bit about how those sort of destructive or negative words are also with them carry like a, a a breaking down of subjectivity or like of an individual unit or it it makes like a the edges fragmented or I think it's like a, without knowing exactly how to pinpoint that within the, the cosmos of the exhibition it's it's yeah I feel like it's it's there somehow pointing to a few of the different things um we've oscillated or floated over binaries quite a bit and there's um, I suppose at the root of the exhibition is this um, definition of feedback loops as a binary situation mm. but um, also turning that on its head in that often the positive um, feedback loop has the most negative outcomes mm -hmm. 
And I think what's quite beautiful across the whole show is that people have played with that sense and really um, almost dissolved that mm-hmm. need for those sorts of descriptions. Where am I going with this question? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm trying to talk about time and I suppose the um, I suppose approach to references in your practice and mm. um, you know you've kind of flattened an approach from high art, high philosophy to low culture and internet and all those sorts of you know sources in which we can draw information. Um, has that always been a part of your practice? Um, yeah, I. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, but maybe there's also been been a freeing up that has happened, um, maybe starting around the time of my masters and and feeling like a lot a lot more freedom to, to not necessarily have to have a really clear clear cut answer as to why this thing exists with this thing. And someone wrote a, a short review of an exhibition I had last year in the Netherlands and used the term that I said that I used an associative methodology which now in hindsight is so obvious but at, at the time I was like oh yeah like the that there I think that I have a, a way of making relationships or finding likenesses between things that aren't necessarily semantic or syntactic or maybe it's got to do with like um a color or like a, a tone or a, a sympathy or a certain kind of gesture that might sort of marry this thing to this thing and that that is like a cross-temporal thing there there is there is no organizing function to how that operates and I think it's intuited and it's embodied and blah 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 like I don't and I don't want to feel like that there is a need to to know what the why these things might have some sort of resonance with each other which I think is also just like a pretty normal art artist's approach to materials you know like that the, the certain kinds of um relationships can be found between things yeah 